listening to the audio podcast of Calvary Court, a Christian church in Cork City Centre that aims to glorify God in our city and far beyond. For more information about Calvary Cork, please visit calvarycork.org. Okay, gluttony. You guys ready? So, no? <laughs> so, I mean, just first off, who, who has... Who has heard a sermon on gluttony before? Wow, where? How about that? <laughs> so in, in County Kerry, right? So in Kerry, there was a sermon preached on gluttony, and no one else has has heard one. Well, I've never preached one before, um, and so this will be a learning experience uh, for all of us. Um, Gluttony is a sin that is often unmentioned uh, in Christian circles uh, these days, and I think that little impromptu experiment uh, maybe maybe validated that. Um, I think there's a variety of reasons why modern Christians uh, don't speak about gluttony uh, very much. And for those of you that are in a a Tuesday or a Thursday community group, maybe that could be something that you and your group talk about. Why is it that we don't discuss this uh, very much? Uh, The Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, has much to say about food. Uh, In fact, the Bible begins with food and ends with food. Genesis begins with a garden full of fruits and vegetables. Revelation ends with a marriage supper full of the finest of foods. And in between, there's a lot of accounts of meals and eating, people treating food properly and people treating food improperly. Uh, Earliest Christians had much to say about food, and then also about the sin of gluttony, um, the effects that it has on a person. And early Christians were um, quick to warn against misuse of food and quick to offer uh, what they thought would be cures uh, towards the sin of gluttony. In fact, an early Christian by the name of Basil the Great, uh, he warned us against food. He said that too much food will keep you from ascending to heaven. I think, he, I think that's a bit oversimplistic, and I, I, um, I'm not, that's going to be my only Basil the Great quote uh, today. But anyway, we see that the early Christians, they, they took it seriously and enough to write about it, and then maybe even to use hyperbolic or exaggerated language uh, to talk about it. So while uh, maybe modern Christians are kind of mute about it, uh, Secular writers, scholars, of course, doctors are pointing out these days a lot the danger uh, between the way that we view food, the way we think about food, uh, and of course, how much we consume food is pointing out connections not just with our physical health, but also with our inner life, with our inner health, uh, that to some degree our our physical health is linked to uh, mental health. And I, I don't think it's a giant jump to say our spiritual health as well, either as a cause or as an effect. So we'll we'll talk about this. Um, I think that we should have a proper uh, view of food, seeing as how the Bible, like I said, is full of it. And so are you, my friends. (laughs) If you're like me, you eat food, like regularly, daily. If you're like me, multiple times a day. (laughs) And uh, so... Uh, we eat it a lot. It's part of us. Our life, you could say, is run on food. And, and more than that, you know, we live in Cork. Um, some of you had the privilege of being born here. Uh, some of us had the privilege of coming here. But, but Cork, like the very heart of Cork, what's the heart of Cork geographically? The, the English market. Uh, and then in there, there's this giant sign that I've seen, and maybe you've seen it as well, that says, Cork, the food capital of Ireland. And if you go to East Cork, if you go to Kinsale, you just see there's all of these kind of industries around like food production and food consumption. So we, as Cork people, of all people, we ought to work towards having a biblical view of food. 
since it drives the economy. I know for some of us are chefs, it drives your specific economy. Um, so let's try to think biblically about it. Uh, let's talk about gluttony, but first let's pray. Father, I pray that as we talk about gluttony, that you would let a, an attitude and a spirit of grace really permeate this, Lord. Um, uh, Lord, I'm not here, nor am I qualified to give dieting tips. Um, but Lord, I pray that as we see some of what Holy Scripture has to say to us about desire and satisfaction of desire uh, with temporal food and eternal food, uh, please help us here in the midst of it, uh, here in Cork, here as people who eat food, help us to think biblically uh, about these things. I especially ask for your Holy Spirit to help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so... Um, I'm going to try to define gluttony. That's always, I'm starting these sermons by, by first off attempting to define uh, the sin that we're talking about. And so how do we define uh, gluttony? Well, I think it has to do with uh, yielding to bodily appetites for food in, in an unhealthy or obsessive way. Uh, so God has made us, made me and made you as appetited people, people with appetites. Um, God did not create human beings to eat on the basis of reason alone or schedules alone. Uh, God's made us with appetites to drive us towards what we need, uh, whether it's food, whether it's drink, whether it's sex or something else. God could have created a universe where you would regularly say things like this. Oh, my fat reserves are running a bit low. I better eat food for sustenance. Or I feel less hydrated than usual. I should procure some water for me to drink. Or a spouse saying to the other, our marriage should be unified through sexual intercourse and children are a blessing. So let us partake. <laughs> so. That's, that's not how bodies work. That's not how the desires God has given us uh, work. It's not how God made us. He made us with appetites and desires that point us towards something healthy. And so, as we talked about, I guess, sexuality last week, now we're talking about another physical appetite, um, that our sexuality, our thirst, our hunger, our God-given drives that are to motivate us towards healthy expressions and towards satisfaction. But I believe for every healthy source of satisfaction, of a God-given desire or appetite, there are probably thousands of unhealthy ways to deal with those appetites. And I'd say probably half of those thousands of ways to do it wrongly have to do with overindulgence. And then I would say the other half of those thousands of wrong ways have to do with um, suppressing them in such a way that denies who we were made to be. And then so gluttony, I would say, is what happens when we overindulge in our God-given appetite for food. Um, so continuing to define gluttony or to attempt to define gluttony, I want to say what it's not. The sin of gluttony is not just, a uh, is not just another way to describe the medical diagnosis of obesity. Um, say it in a, different, in a different way, gluttony is not just a spiritual synonym for being overweight. Um, certainly, the sin of gluttony often leads to obesity or being overweight, but sometimes it doesn't. Uh, there are gluttons who are very skinny, and there are people who are a little overweight who are not necessarily gluttonous. We'll talk about that later on, but just throwing that out there. That being said, that doesn't mean that uh, there's not a strong link between gluttony and its usual or ordinary effect, which would be obesity. In fact, we should pay attention to this. Um, did you notice a couple months ago, it was kind of headline news uh, that the World Health Organization uh, back in May, has announced that Ireland is on its way to becoming Europe's most overweight country. 
Dr. Laura Weber says that the study presented a worrying picture of rising obesity across Europe and that Ireland is at the forefront. Congratulations, guys. <laughs> um, so Professor uh, Donald O'Shea, um, he says that um, in, a, in an interview on, uh, I think, uh, 96FM, um, obesity is already driving a diabetes epidemic, a cancer epidemic, a heart disease epidemic that frankly, with, is within the health services that we currently have, we are not coping with it. If the World Health Organization figures are even half correct, this is an unthinkable scenario. Uh, and so I guess there's, uh, there's projected uh, uh, data about what it's going to be like in Ireland in 2030. So in 15 years, uh, they're quite concerned about this. So looking forward into the future of Ireland, we see it's concerning. And then looking back, looking back 160 years, uh, the country that lived through on Gorta Moor, or the Great Famine, is now on its way to becoming the fattest country in the developed world. So I think we should maybe take, take thought and interest in this. So what is gluttony? Uh, Thomas Aquinas defined gluttony as an inordinate interest with food. And I love that word, inordinate. Um, we don't use that word very much, but it just means out of order, out of place. Uh, you think of, of a queue, and you're, you're lining up for the bus or something like that. Um, and you know the kind of queue forms for the bus, and then the bus arrives, and it's not where people imagine, and then all of a sudden it turns into this like, ah. Um, well, like, you had a nice order. Like, people were there as they should be, but then all of a sudden it gets disordered. Uh, the people that were in the back have somehow made their way to the front and they get the good seat on the bus and then you're stuck in the, in the bad seat. So an inordinate interest or obsession with food, what should be second or third or fourth or fifth is now placed first. So it's not necessarily how much you eat, but the power or the control that food has over you and your thought life. And just to, to emphasize this once again, the Bible and this sermon is not going to be food negative. Like, I'm not going to be pushing us towards, like, making vows to never eat again or to subsist on bread and water um, as, as a way to punish ourselves. No, no. The Bible's not food negative. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. The, the, the Apostle Paul imagines a world, imagines a Christian life where it's full of eating and drinking to the glory of God. And so I think this is very much connected uh, with last week's sermon on lust. As I said last week, the Bible is not sex negative, but it gives guidelines so that we don't elevate or disorder a natural appetite to the wrong order and then cause destruction and dislocation of our souls. Uh, if you have Proverbs 24 open, or your finger's still there, uh, I, I just think even on that very page of your Bible, uh, we see a couple references to honey, of all things. And I think the way that the Proverbs describe honey is maybe kind of a good picture of how the Bible wants us to think about food and gluttony. So in Proverbs 24:13. Proverbs 24, 13, uh, it says, My son, eat honey, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Eat honey because it tastes good. And then now maybe move over to chapter 25, which probably is on the same page. And it goes on to say, If you have found honey... Eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill and you vomit it. And then, Proverbs 25, 27, It is not good to eat too much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. So, what do we make of that? Is the Bible anti-honey? Not at all. Uh, is the body pro-honey in moderation? Definitely. Enjoy it because it's good. There's an appetite that you have to eat it because it's sweet. But don't overindulge. Don't glut on it. Don't eat to the point of getting sick.
And of course, even as we sang, and the most famous psalm of them all, Psalm 23, speaks about God preparing a table for us. So many of the miracles in the Old Testament had to do with God miraculously providing food and drink for his people. And then even the miracles of Jesus, many of them had to do with him feeding large crowds of people. So to say it again, the Bible is not, this sermon is not anti-food. But we oppose the idolization of food and drink, allowing anything but food, since that's what we're talking about right now, to play the role of God in our lives. Uh, it's a violation of the first commandment to, to have no other gods before Yahweh, before the Lord. It removes the plate, food from its proper place, and like I said, it, it makes it jump the queue, and it goes in front of all of our other desires and places too much importance. Um, Augustine speaks of uh, virtuous people availing themselves of the things of this life with the moderation of use, but not with the attachment of a lover. In other ways, sorry, in other words, um, Augustine is saying that we should use food, enjoy food, but not be in love with it, like the way a husband loves his wife or a wife her husband. So that's kind of a definition. Uh, hopefully that makes sense of what it is. And now we're going to look at a description of gluttony. So now back to Genesis 25, uh, verses 29 and 34. We're actually going to look at the same story that we looked at last week for... Um, for lust, and here we're going to see it again with this implication for gluttony. Uh, the last paragraph of chapter 25. Once again, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die, so what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So again, this is familiar because we looked at it last week, but, but just to refresh us, or if, if we weren't there last week, uh, Jacob and Esau, they were two brothers. They were twins, in fact. Esau was the firstborn twin, and because of that, he had what's called this birthright. Uh, financially and uh, responsibility speaking, it meant that the firstborn son had double or even treble the inheritance of the other uh, children that came after them. But then also, because this is a descendant of Abraham, there was an added spiritual significance uh, that the promise that God made Abraham, that through his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Well, the birthright was attached to that. And that's the lineage by which God would bless the world. And so, but here we see that Jacob Sorry, that Esau, because of a physical appetite, because of his hunger, he's willing to trade that for a bowl of soup. And like, I like lentils. Lentils are good. Excellent source of protein. <laughs> uh, but yet here we see that this is included. We're supposed to see that he has exchanged something great, something wonderful for something temporary and something not that great. He's, he's come back from a day out in the field. Uh, it says that he is hungry, but he is not starving. There is no great danger to his health. He has gone, let's say, a day without food. Tops. He probably had breakfast, actually. And so he probably had breakfast and then skipped lunch and dinner. And then he says, oh, I'm starving. So he's, he's just exaggerating things. And he's, in a sense, maybe being dramatic. Um, his hunger is crowding out every other consideration. His appetite is usurping everything else. And so Jacob is a very sneaky guy. He's, like, Jacob is not the good guy in this story, nor Esau. Nobody is the good guy in this. We see two brothers with this dysfunctional relationship uh, being greedy and manipulative. 
And Jacob takes advantage of his hunger to serve himself, to say, I want what you have, so will you swap me this intangible birthright for this delicious bowl of lentils? Um, I learned a word uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Sheena taught it to me. Uh, it's called hangry. Um, and it's, uh, I guess it means, I'm told it means, when you are so hungry that it just turns you angry. Um, and so I don't think that Esau is hangry here, but maybe he is um, ha-desperate. I don't know. Um, ha-dumb. Is, is that how you make up words you just say? No. <laughs> so I guess his temporary hunger has caused him to, to disorder everything else. So there is, um, because of his yeah, hunger, he is unable to forego immediate gratification and comfort in order to wait for a greater but deferred blessing. I I, I want to say that again. His failure was his inability to forego immediate gratification and comfort in order to wait for a greater but deferred blessing. Do you want a little bit of happiness now or a lot of happiness later is what Esau is offered. And he says, give me that now. I want the, 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 the satisfaction now, not later. That's how gluttony works. That's how probably every other sin works too. Do you want to feel good now or feel great later? Do you want a little bit of happiness now or a lot of joy later? That greed, that gluttony to say, I want it, I want it now. That's again, like I said, that's kind of how sin works. We trade the best for the immediate. Uh, in the New Testament, Paul speaks to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he tells them that, you know, all things are lawful to me. You know, I could eat or drink whatever I want. But he says, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. And then in verses 12 and 13, he says, gluttony and lust are things that can master you, that can rule over you. Uh, elsewhere, Paul says to the Philippians, He speaks about a group of false teachers, and he says of these, he says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But there's that phrase, their God is their belly. So a few minutes ago, I said that gluttony is a a violation of the first commandment, to have no other gods uh, before the Lord. I saw a face or two be like, huh, really? Well, Paul's on my side. So (laughs) Paul says that your belly can be your God. So again, once again, Paul and the Bible does not have a negative view of food. He, He says elsewhere in Acts chapter 14, he says that God gives rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying our hearts with food and gladness. But gluttony, like so many other sins, takes a good thing and then warps it and twists it, oops, sorry, and warps it and twists it into something destructive. And we see a sad history in scripture of people giving in to the desire for food at the cost of righteousness, truth, and joy. Adam and Eve disobey God over food. Esau traded his birthright over food. The Israelites right after they were liberated from Egyptian slavery. It's not too long before they say, uh, God, can we just swap this? Can we just go back to Egypt? I miss Egypt. And guys, what did they miss about Egypt? Did they miss Pharaoh? Did they miss the, the whips? Did they miss having to make uh, bricks with no, with no uh, I forget, straw? What is it that they missed about Egypt? It was the food. Numbers chapter 11 talks about how they missed the onions and the leeks and the garlic. They missed the food, and so they were willing to swap what God has for them for the immediate benefit. When Satan tempted Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus went 40 days in the wilderness, similar to how the Israelites endured 40 years, he also was tempted with food by Satan. And then Paul tells the Corinthians that they were having schisms in their church because of the way that they viewed food. And the wealthy were taking advantage of the poor over food and the way that they ate food. So God gives food and drink, but sin messes them up. 
If we allow anything other than God, but especially food, to occupy the central place in our hearts, it's going to cause disaster. You're not meant to be defined by your appetite. I think that is true in so many aspects of human life and flourishing. But, but hear me now for gluttony. You're not meant to be defined by your appetite. And so gluttony is an inordinate interest in food. Um, how, how does that work its way out? We might, in our minds, picture what a gluttonous person looks like. But I think that, that picture could be wrong. Uh, an early Christian called Gregory the Great. Um, yeah, early Christians like to give themselves nicknames, huh? <laughs> so Basil the Great, Gregory the Great. <laughs> uh, anyway. I thought that was funny. No one else thought it was funny. Okay. <laughs> so Gregory, he, he lists out... Uh, different ways that gluttony can show itself in the way that a person consumes food. He says, if you eat too daintily, too sumptuously, too hastily, too greedily, or too obsessively, then you probably have a, a problem with, with food. I'm going to briefly hit on these things. Uh, what does it mean to eat too delicately? Uh, well, it means that everything that you eat has to be just perfect. A person that is daintily gluttonous probably has a strong opinion about every restaurant in Cork, about every stall at the English market, that they have an opinion about it. Uh, food snob, maybe is a word. Um, and then also, this makes hospitality hard to accept from other people. If, if someone prepares something for you, uh, a dainty glutton is going to find fault with an offer of hospitality from something else. Well, you cooked it, but you didn't cook it right. Or, I, I, I'm sorry, I eat my food differently than that. Um, exerting control over others by insisting on being fed the right way. So that doesn't look like gluttony, we think, but Gregory thinks it does. And I think that's also a problem of an inordinate emphasis on eating the right things. Connected to that, uh, there's eating too daintily, eating too sumptuously. Um, we only eat the kind of food that we want to eat. We only eat for the taste, not for nourishment. You're not eating for health. You're eating for the satisfaction. What would make me feel good rather than what does my body need? Um, hastily, that one doesn't need as much explanation, just kind of shoveling food into your mouth. Um, these second half ones, these kind of fit our stereotype of what gluttony looks like. The third one is greedily. Sorry, the fourth one is greedily. Um, excess overeating, excessive overeating past the point of fullness and just indulging your taste. So you overlook the long-term consequences for the short-term pleasure. Uh, you know you're going to feel sick later, but it feels good now. Now, I just... You can do that a couple times a year. <laughs> like, like Christmas is for that, I think. Um, there's opportunities for that. But is this a consistent pattern in life to say, I'm going to get sick eventually or feel sick eventually, but I, this tastes so good. That probably could be a problem with gluttony. Or then finally, Gregory says, obsessively. Instead of eating to live, you live to eat. Uh, if you go to a party or a gathering, you're more interested in what sort of food's going to be there instead of who's going to be there. Uh, if the food is bad, then the evening or the day is destroyed. Uh, if you define yourself by what you eat or what you don't eat. Uh, now, I know there are people that can or, or don't eat certain foods for health or for ethical reasons. So I'm not saying, oh, if you have an allergy or an objection to eating certain thing on, on valid reasons, I suppose, then that means you're a glutton. <laughs> um, however, is it a defining character of you? Now, like, let me admit uh, that when I was younger, I was, uh, I was uh, vegan for a couple of years, and everybody knew, you know, because I told them. <laughs> um, you know, there's the joke, how do you know if someone's vegan? Don't worry, they'll tell you. Um, well, anyway, I was that guy. And, and let me say, I just got to say, I know there's some vegans in the room. And what's great is that that's not the defining character of you guys. Like, you don't introduce yourself, hi, I'm Orla, I'm vegan. Or, hi, I'm vegan, I'm Orla. <laughs> um, 
But, but yet, for a couple obnoxious years, that was me. I wanted everyone to know that, and I, I insisted on everybody accommodating me. And, and so for a while, there was kind of an obsessiveness where I was getting skinnier and skinnier, but I think that there was some aspect of, I guess, the sin of gluttony and then inordinately obsessing over food and allowing my identity to be dictated by what I ate. Or on the other hand, again, we're in the food capital of Ireland, um, so I think self-described foodies can be especially susceptible to this. Uh, if you want to be known, you know, not as vegan or whatever, but like, you know, the guy who only eats good food, you know, the guy who only drinks craft beer, uh, the one who only has artisan coffee and won't settle for anything else, only the finest of wine, only the, the bubbliest of water, you know. Um, or, on the other end, this obsessiveness could be um, obsessed with losing weight or constantly counting calories. Um, so, like I said at the very beginning, I believe it's possible to be a skinny glutton. Because I, I was one once, and I think, again, that could be uh, not the person that's packing on the pounds, but the one that is obsessing over every bite. So there are so-called, well, there are um, legitimately titled um, eating disorders. And eating disorders such as anorexia and bulimia are categorized as eating disorders just as much as overeating is. So there's wrong ways of viewing food that express themselves in a variety of ways. So what's the, what's the prognosis, I suppose? What do we do if we allow gluttony to overtake our lives? Remember, so this series is called The Seven Deadly Sins. So what's, what's deadly about gluttony? Well, this one's kind of easiest because if you define your life by gluttony, it'll kill you. It really, really will. I already quoted Donald O'Shea, but here he is again. He says that the obesity is driving an ep a diabetes epidemic, a cancer epidemic, a heart disease epidemic. But I'd say more than just the risk to our, our bodies that we live in, uh, there, there can be a danger to our soul. Because if we assign anything other than God the unbearable weight of our identity, it's, it's going to let us down. If we allow our obsession with food to say, that's who I am, if we want to exert control over the world by managing what we eat, well, ultimately, you're not in control of the world. But if we want to lean on God as the one who is the creator and the sustainer of the earth and you, well, then God can handle it, but your lunch cannot. We are called to break free from the prison of our appetites. It's a good thing made by God, but if we allow that to define us, it's unable to bear the weight. I like, I like uh, history. I like European history. Because there is some crazy stuff in European history. Like, I love living in Europe, but like, you guys got some crazy history. <laughs> Check this out. So, Reynald III, he was a, um, a 14th century duke in what now is known as Belgium, and he was grossly overweight. Um, Reynald was constantly, or was commonly called by his Latin nickname, Crassus, which means fat. So there's Gregory the Great, Basil the Great, and there's Reynald the Fat. Um, <clears throat> but he got in a violent quarrel with his brother um, Edward, and Edward led a successful revolt against him. Um, Edward captured his brother Reynald, but he didn't kill him. So he devised this punishment for, you know, Reynald, who would have been king if Edward hadn't have taken over. He built a room around Reynald in the Newkirk castle and promised him that he could regain his title as soon as he was able to leave the room. And the room had no doors, no locks. It had windows and, a, and an ordinary sized door that was you know, available to, for him to leave whenever possible. But it was smaller than Reynald was. And Edward knew his brother and every day, he had the chefs cook a variety of delicious foods, sweet and savory, and would have it delivered to him every day. And so instead of dieting his way out of prison, Reynald got bigger and bigger and bigger. 
So Edward was accused of cruelty by many, but his answer was, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he wills. So he literally uh, was a prisoner of his own appetite. Um, Edward died in battle, and they disassembled the room that he was kept in, and uh, he reigned for about a year, but then because of his health, he died uh, soon afterwards. So Reynold Crassus was unable to put off future temptation, sorry, present temptation for future benefit. And he gave in moment after moment, day after day, to the immediate temptation that he had, uh, giving up on the hope of a better future for the immediate um, satisfaction. And so was Esau. So going back to our account, it's a lot less dramatic for Esau uh, but that's that. It's like, what's good for me now, not what's best for me later? Or more importantly, what's best for my family later, but what's good for me now? So gluttony does damage to your body, obviously, and damage to your soul. And Esau is an example of that. Um, he, he should have seen it coming. He knows that his his brother Jacob is a tricky guy and that he's trying to manipulate him. He's trying to take advantage of him, but he willingly signs away. And remember, for them, the birthright isn't just a matter of inheritance, although it has to do that, but it has to do with God's plan to bless the whole world through their family. So he chooses to devalue God's plan for his future based on an immediate satisfaction. So at that moment... His God was his belly. And then so for us, you know, when you contrast Reynold Crassus and Esau with you right now, we don't feel like we're in the same category. We don't feel that like everything is hanging in the balance for us as it was for them. But food is an important part of our life. As I mentioned, I eat it three times a day, often more. And so do you. Uh, it's the way that we think and act about it is important. Uh, so I think what the, what the Bible tells us uh, and what sociologists are telling us these days is the way that we view food is indicative of like our inner health. If we have contentment, we're, we're prone to view food as food. But if there's turmoil within us, then food becomes a savior. Food becomes a rescuer. So what do you, when do you eat the most obsessively? When do you eat the most? Is it when you are anxious or lonely or sad um, or bored? If, if food is the go-to when you're anxious, lonely, sad, scared, or bored, then that's... Is food the place that you run to when you're anxious rather than God? What does that say about what you believe about the promises of God, uh, saying that he's the one that when we're anxious to, to rush towards? If it's a if it's something else, uh, do you eat to reward yourself? Do you eat to punish yourself? What role does food play in your life? Is it part of your life or is it mastering you? Food is good, but food is not God. And then gluttony is turning food into God and master. Gluttony is looking for food to do a miracle in our life. So God is the one who does miracles. God is the one who brings significance and meaning. God is the one who lifts our hearts. But when we look to fish and chips to lift our hearts, we're asking it to do more than fish and chips can do. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But instead, I go to ramen or hummus. <laughs> or any number of things, uh, you know, at the end of the day to say, I am weary, I am worn out, I can't wait to sit on the couch and watch Netflix and eat hummus. <laughs> um, but the Lord Jesus says, come to me when you're heavy laden and weary. Now again, there's nothing against like uh, relaxing, but if it's a substitute. So anyway, how do we deny this? Um, so we define it, we describe it, and ultimately we want to deny it. Um, the Bible has two solutions for the glutton, two principles that ought to be part of our Christian experience, fasting and feasting. 
like feasting. Oh, but first, hear me out with the fasting, and then and then we'll get to it. <clears throat> uh, fasting is a, a helpful spiritual discipline that involves saying no to our appetites for a period of time. Saying, "I am not going to eat anything for a day or two days," or modifying it. Or saying, I'm going to not eat sweets or meat or something else. I'm going to give something up for a period of time. I think it's a helpful discipline to, to even say, to kind of, to say to your body or your appetites, you're not my master, I master you. And so you listen to me, I don't always have to listen to you. It's a time to express our dependence on God. It's a time for us to um, put into practice what the Lord Jesus said, say man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God to say, I'm going to give bread alone a, a pause for a little bit of time. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus uh, imagines or propose or Jesus says that the Christian life is going to involve periods of fasting. So there's that. However, the Bible has much to say about feasting. In fact, the Bible's references to feasting outnumber its references to fasting 10 to 1. Uh, there were six major feasts in the Old Testament, and some of them stretched on for weeks. Uh, families feasted together to celebrate certain milestones in their lives. In the New Testament, Jesus chose to perform his first miracle at a wedding feast. And then even what he did had to do with food and drink. Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven with a great, a great banquet. Uh, Revelation describes heaven like a wedding party filled with the finest of food and drink. And then also, Jesus went to so many parties that he was falsely accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Not that he was, but that he was around food and drink so much. So I think we need to fight gluttony by fasting and also by feasting well. Uh, saying, you know, that the way that we view food, if we look at food too high, it means that there's some kind of emptiness within us. Uh, theologian Peter Kreft says that the motivation for gluttony is the unconscious self-image of emptiness. I must fill myself because I am empty, ghost-like, and worthless. Um, another writer says that gluttony is trying to fill a spiritual vacuum with a physical remedy. It's like taking penicillin for a broken heart. There's nothing wrong with penicillin, but it doesn't do much for a restless soul, and too much of it can lead to all kinds of problems. So let's, let's say, let's acknowledge that our souls can be full. Uh, unless we realize that our soul is full, then we're going to constantly try to fill that gap with food. Uh, in John chapter 6, verse 35, right after Jesus performed one of his food-creating miracles, in John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me shall not hunger, and he who comes to me shall never thirst. I'm the bread of life, he says. There's two different Greek words for life. There's bios, uh, which where we get the word biology and a lot of other words probably that start with the word bio, like active bio yogurt. <laughs> um, there's biology, which speaks of physical life. And there's zoe, uh, which is a Greek word. It means, it means alive. It means spiritual life. Jesus says, I am the bread of Zoe, I'm the bread of spiritual life, and you come to me that I'm going to satisfy that spiritual hunger that you're just trying to cram full, full of other things. So bread is to keep our body running, but we're more than just our body. We need the life-giving bread of life, Jesus. And so the battle against gluttony is to choose to feast with God rather than just to stuff our mouth with lesser things. So we can feast well. I have uh, two or three thoughts on how to feast well. We feast, feast well by eating with thanks. Um, to acknowledge the food that I have, whether it's artisan or not, whether it's great or average, it's, it's from God. One writer says that food is the love of God made tangible. Isn't that cool? 
Um, so we can eat that with thanks. We can receive it well and be all the more appreciative. Praying before a meal can be an empty ritual. And, and how many of us have heard or just said an empty prayer where we quote the same words before our food because that's just what you feel like you ought to do? But I believe it also can be a discipline that reminds us that the food that we have is not God, but is a gift from God. And so we can say thank you for every meal that we have. And then also we see feast well by eating thankfully. And we can also feast well by eating with a purpose. Food connects us with people, doesn't it? Uh, you think of so many of like the great memories that you have, perhaps with... <clears throat> people that are no longer with us, or people that are with us still. So many of our good memories have to do with food. Family gatherings, uh, first dates, um, just banter happening over a meal. Um, Eating with people reminds you that there are others out there, and they have needs, not just you. That food is social, not just a physical glut. And, you know, for us, as a church, you know, like, we, we eat a lot. <laughs> um, you know, we, we try to have, like, food and good food um, after every Sunday. And, and so that because, for a couple reasons, but because it encourages people to stay and get to know people and connect. The New Testament, you know, specifically looks at sharing a meal with somebody as having, like, deep fellowship uh, with them. And we have earned the nickname uh, Calorie Cork. <laughs> Uh, not Calvary Cork, but Calorie Cork. And we're still going to do it. Because again, we're not anti-food, but just looking at food is properly ordered. And then I guess the third way to feast well is to, is to feast, I suppose, uh, with, with the Lord. Uh, you know, we, we do eat a meal together every Sunday. And I'm not, I suppose, referencing cakes and tea and coffee afterwards. But it's, it's the Lord's Supper, uh, a picture of the gospel that Jesus gives himself to us and for us. And so the elements of the Lord's Supper, uh, the bread and the cup, a reminder that Jesus gave all of who he was for us, that he sacrificed himself for us, that there on the cross, Jesus thirsted so that we might be satisfied and refreshed by the fruit of his labor. This is a word that we don't really use here, and there's reasons why we don't use it, but many Christians refer to, and Christendom refers to the Lord's Supper as Eucharist. And that word, all it means in Greek means thanksgiving. Now again, there's reasons why we're not going to call it Eucharist, but just the idea of, of referring to the Lord's table as that meal of thanksgiving, to say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done And this meal symbolizes and recognizes that. Communion is a time for us to uh, look around. Uh, Look around at those people that are taking communion with you. So we have it there at that side table. Um, And what an opportunity is you're going to have to queue up and wait for it. Remember, you're you're having this meal, this meal of thankfulness with, with people. And not only in this building, not only in this congregation, but think of the believers around the world today that are sharing this meal with us. Think of the believers that in the generations past have shared this meal with us. And so we together are saying, thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And together we're eating together. And so we're at the, Sunday is called the first day of the week. Um, and I know, I know we start late and you've probably already had breakfast, but maybe you haven't. <laughs> so this could be for you the first or the second meal of the week. You know, you're going to have like 19 or 20 other meals throughout this week. Uh, but may, may this meal uh, set the tone for the next 19 or 20 meals that you have. Eating with thankfulness, saying, I only have this because of what you've done for me, Jesus. And then also eating as a symbol of gratitude and community. I'm having this together with the church, with the body of Christ. And so with that kind of tone... Hopefully that can help food to become less God and more good in our life. That it's not what we're enslaved to, but it's something that we use. It's not something that masters us, but
but it's something that we use to fuel ourselves to serve God and to serve people. I ate a meal with somebody a long time ago, and, and he prayed before we ate, and he said, you know, thank you, God, for this food. And he says, may this food be fuel and energy for us to do your will. And I thought, that's great. Using food as a means to propel my body and keep it alive so that I can serve God with it. Turn those calories into, um, uh, I can't think of anything clever. <laughs> and calories into converts. Nathan, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so I, I was really struck by him saying that, and I've kind of actually incorporated that into my pre-meal prayer to think, God, help me to turn these calories into obedience. Um, let's pray. <laughs> so, Father, yeah, we're talking about food, and there's so much that could be said. There's more that could be said, Lord. But, um, God, I do pray, uh, you know, some of us may have come in this morning and known that we have a problem in this area. And so, Father, I pray that the grace, Lord, to overcome this sin would be not just available, but applied, Lord, to their lives. Um, Lord, some of us might have come in uh, just mildly interested uh, because they're sure that this is not their problem. But, Lord, it could be. And would you... Lord, awaken, Lord, a heart or a mind to recognize the sin and to confess and repent of it. And Father, I pray, Lord, for all of us that we would see an increase in gratitude and contentment and self-control, Lord, um, either godly characteristics or fruit of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that just contradict all that gluttony would lie to us. Thank you so much that Jesus is the bread of life and that by subsisting on him, Lord, that there is no hunger left for lesser things. Forgive us for turning the good gifts that you've given us into substitute saviors. And would you have mercy on us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect to Calvary Cork, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We meet Sunday mornings at 11.15 and Wednesday nights at 7.30 at 3 Penrose Quay, Cork City.